I'm KCT, and this is Going Up North, the podcast where I take interesting people out on the ice to try their hand at a family tradition, spearfishing. While we wait the hours it may take for the opportunity to spear norther, we'll shoot the shit, have some laughs, tell our stories, and hopefully go home with one in the bag. Returning again this week is my guest, Dr. Anton Troyer, professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, author, speaker, historian, and we continue our conversation about education, history, politics, power, and cultural knowledge. Let's dive back into this epic day right where we left off, talking power politics waged by the state against indigenous people. Things like that, and instead weaponizing it to hurt those kids because they don't like the political positions of their parents? Just making enemies at that point. Yeah. And because they want a Canadian-owned company (laughs) to profit from the pipeline. Yeah. Dakota Energy Transfer Partners is actually based out of Texas and Enbridge is based out of Canada, but Enbridge has a 25% ownership in in uh, Energy Transfer Partners. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I'm not even sure what the current percentage is, but I know they were affecting that. Hmm. <coughs> so you're on the executive board for the State Historical Society, correct? Yeah. What's that look like? I mean, like that, that uh, you know. Yeah, I'm kind of green on the board. I'm, you know, been on there for a few months. But, uh, yeah, we're the governing board. So we've got some big budgets, but sometimes some big policy decisions to sort out. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the historical society's come a long way um, from the days when they were like, owning the skeleton of Little Crow, you know, and kind of stuff like that. Now that they're one of the best historical societies in the country, both in terms of quality of archives and facilities, but also programming and the press. I've published a lot of my work with the Minnesota Historical Society Press. And I think they're trying really hard to do better uh, in terms of, you know, absent narratives and marginalized voices and yeah, I'm, I'm excited to work with them. I've ditched most of my board work and stuff. I'm just overwhelmingly busy and kind of got to focus on the things that only I can do. Sure. But it's good to have some representation and from the Native community out there. Oh, absolutely. Good for everybody. So you do a lot of summer fishing? Yeah. Get the kids out there. Jeez, nine kids with poles? Holy crap. <laughs> you have a more haven't been to the ER right. with hooks in their mouth. Absolutely. I get scared when there's like three people in a boat yeah. zinging lures. <laughs> yeah, no, we usually don't take them all at the very same time. I sure. So this kind of ties into something we were talking about earlier, and I think probably one of the more uniquely qualified people to weigh in on this, but as I say, I was living in Mankato last, or St. Peter, whatever, for like the last four years. A couple years ago, there's a 
toy company down there or whatever, I don't know, um, released a Halloween costume that was an Anne Frank costume. Mm. And rightfully <coughs> so, people had things to say about it, right? Mm -hmm. And I heard about this on my way to work. <clears throat> and uh, I was thinking to myself, I bet you. So when I got home, I looked. Because then they pulled, the, they pulled it, and they were like, oh, sorry, we're not going to do that anymore. But I went home and looked, and sure as shit, they have an entire section dedicated to, like, Indian costumes. Yeah. Like, where... Where do we determine, like, the atrocity that needs acknowledge? I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm hmm Yeah, it's difficult to, uh, to navigate that. Like, if we take everything too seriously and don't give people room to, you know, explore, mess around, or joke around to some degree, you know, I can see how that can stifle... Um, friendly feelings or something, right? Like, make everybody walk around on eggshells. Right. But at the same time, um, if there is a person or a group of people who are genuinely and significantly offended by something we're doing, then it's good to really look at, is it worth stuffing it in their face keep this going or is it better to you know not to do that and I realize that the world's a big enough place where there's a great many things that may be offensive to at least somebody you know and that makes it difficult sometimes to know where and how to draw the lines but sometimes we d you know, it's important to see things from someone else's perspective, like um, even something like an eagle feather, for example. On the one hand, it's just a feather, but in a lot of native contexts, you know, eagle feather is considered very sacred, and only certain people could wear them, and feathers had to be earned, often through a military deed or something like that. And so, or some are, you know, worn only by men or different things. So to decontextualize it, you know, um, might be really upsetting for some Native people. So when you got a Victoria's Secret model wearing a faux eagle feather headdress, well, those are really honorific things. Each feather earned only, you know, very venerable chiefs could wear something like that. Then it kind of you know, makes light of or makes a mockery of that. And just like Americans, maybe sometimes would be offended when somebody's burning a flag, you know, in the streets of Tehran. And like, ooh, I wish those people wouldn't do that. Well, it, that's because that's a symbol that's sacred to you. Mm. So if a symbol, a different symbol is sacred to someone else, why is it so hard to understand why that would be upsetting to them? Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know. With regard to, you know, the Halloween costumes, I, I think one of the issues there is that, you know, at the base of it, you know, you've got people dressing up as lions, tigers, bears, and Indians. So, it, like, we become a thing. 
Right. And and so it's just kind of objectifying and dehumanizing. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I have nine kids. We've been through just about every kind of Halloween costume there sure. is, you know. I was dressed up as Prince this past fall. Nice. I, I guess we could say that, you know, I was objectifying Prince and treating him as a thing rather than as a human being who just passed away, you know. Like, but if that's actually really offending people in his family, I don't think I'd do it. Sure. But if it's not, then I rock the shit out of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, so it's it's kind of like like we're like fish, right? We can see everything in our environment perfectly, except for the glass bowl that confines us. Mm. And there we are swimming along, and we run into the glass. Oh, that hurts. Somebody's mad at me. Why? So maybe instead of just being defensive, you don't have a right to have that glass wall right there. But we don't get to pick our environment. We don't get to pick all the other groups of people and how they're going to react. So to navigate, you need some sonar. And sonar is sound waves going out and sound waves coming back. So we're getting information from other groups of people about what works for them and what's offensive to them. And as those sound waves come back to us, then we can navigate differently. So we can either avoid the glass or keep running into the glass wall and be offended at the whole world for being offended at us. Right. I don't know. It just seems like selective outrage is yeah incredibly frustrating or yeah. very limited. You know, it's like... Like Elizabeth Warren, right? Like, mm-hmm. what a shit show that is, you know. And it's like it's it, well, and it's distracting and like from any of the from anything that's actually an issue. It's just a sideshow, you know. Like mm-hmm. that, like either way, any way you cut it, it's just you know unhelpful to anyone, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, shouldn't we be talking about like the you know actual issues? Right? Shouldn't we talk like the plight of the American Indian and not Elizabeth? You know what I mean? Like, what the president said some racist ass shit, and now we're over here just like you know fumbling around with nonsense when really you know there's like a whole people that are you know. Made into a thing, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that whole thing, I don't know. It would be really nice to have it put to rest, but I kind of doubt it will be. And it's, you know, like, there are lots of Native people who, you know, people who have some Native blood in their veins who've been disconnected from their communities. So like, you know, lots of people are multiracial. Um, a lot, you know, a third of native people have been adopted and fostered out of their communities, raised in non-native environments. And a person might have a, you know, native biology and might even have native consciousness. Like they see themselves as a native person, but they might look kind of white or look kind of black or look like any number of other things. 
And it's like that with any number of other groups, too. I mean, I've met people from Sweden who look kind of dark, you know? Sure. And, uh, you know, I've met Italians who, holy cow, are they black or Arab or, mm. you know? Um, so people don't, the way they look will impact how they get othered by others, but it's not the only thing there is to their racial identity. So, you know, if I see somebody, if they look white, look black, look brown, if they say, hey, I've got native heritage and I really want to explore that part of who I am, I'm like, cool, you know, own it. Um, but there is a difference between somebody saying, you know, I'm white and Cherokee or, you know, I'm white, but my great-great-grandmother was a Cherokee princess because they're kind of marginalizing that identity in their own consciousness rather than saying I'm both of these things right so then it becomes owned only as heritage or as a way to say hey I'm not a racist or um, things like that rather than you know as hey this is part of who I am right or trying to gain some sort of agency within that group or right and yeah. so that's what was unfortunate about Elizabeth Warren like I think she didn't really like hold out her native heritage and say, hey, this is part of who I am and I want to explore and know more about that. It also seems like she wasn't using it to like for job or educational advantage or something like that, but it did get politicized. And um, it seems like there's no way for her to address that without at least appearing to seek political leverage or something. Mm. And so... Donald Trump, all he has to do is be a jerk and be like, hey, Pocahontas. And it just, that is enough for people to go, yeah, she's full of shit. Right. You know? And and uh, it, not everybody will believe that she's full of crap, but some people will. And so it, it has devastating impact. And it's just just funny enough, you know, where it'll get traction to some people. Right. But it's also off-color enough where it will offend some people. But the people that Donald Trump risks offending are not people who would be supporting him anyway. So he'll never back down from that. So we will have a bunch of Pocahontas stuff and people at political rallies going woo 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 woo, -woo and crap like that right. while she's running for president. So that's I'm not really looking forward to that necessarily. No. No. Yeah. And I can see, too, like, you know, there's been some mixed reactions from Native people about that, too. Some people are like, yeah, she's not the real deal. She should back off. And others are like, hey, you know, she has the right to be who she is, and she can own that, too. And so you get a mixed reaction. But as you mentioned, all of that, a sideshow to the really much more legitimate issues about, like, our politics and economics and things like that. Absolutely. I know it gets a lot of traffic, but is Leech Lake a pretty good lake to fish or not so much anymore? Or? Yeah, you know, um, it's, it's been a great lake through the years with the zebra mussels and a fair amount of traffic over the past 50 years or so. You know, it's fishery's not what it was. But it's, yeah, it's still, and it's a it's a tougher lake to fish. Like the, some parts of it are really deep, hmm. and uh, yeah, you kind of gotta, you know, just kind of. I guess if you've got the equipment or you know the lake, you 
won't have too much trouble finding spots, but yeah, and it's a beautiful, beautiful lake. Yeah, I haven't spent too much time in that area, really. I mean, it's close enough to here, but... Yeah, and then Winnie, you know, just on the other side of the highway, is a little bit more like Red Lake in some ways, where it's, you know, not quite the surface area of Red Lake, but it's a fairly shallow lake. It's okay. a great walleye lake, and, uh, um, yeah, it's almost a little bit easier to fish. You just line up on the sandbars and... Yeah, I've always heard. I've always heard that that's a good lake, or knowing people that went fishing it. But yeah. when you don't got the gear, you know, like yeah. I don't even. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna turn thirty next week, and I don't know if my dad had let me take his boat. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of times it's just lost on people that we really are just all people, you know. Yeah. Trying to. You know make it right and there's there's so much that like knee-jerk reaction tends to separate us but right when you boil it all down I mean, we're not that different you know right I guess, um, so I think, <coughs> I think an important part of that conversation is elevating voices in that context you know mm -hmm. i think is you know something that's important you know uh, yeah and the more deeply we can understand other people and their perspective then the easier it will be to do something together you know yeah absolutely absolutely if we just listen to other people sometimes that's a lot yeah and i mean we're in a, we're at a time now where the majority of the K-12 students in America are students of color. That's who's here. We might be in one of the whiter parts of one of the whiter states, but that's who's here. It doesn't matter what happens or doesn't happen with the building of walls and immigration policy, and that's who's here. So chances are your grandkids are going to include people of color, and you and your kids and your grandkids are going to be working people of color. So like, figuring out how to get along is probably good for everybody. And uh, figuring out how to respect each other and appreciate each other and be in the same canoe is probably good for everybody. Being adversarial with people because they have a different skin color, that's so Nazi Holocaust and slavery era like we got to get past that because mm -hmm. that that kind of thinking it's not just harmful to whoever gets like marginalized or oppressed it dehumanizes everybody dehumanizes everybody and it's kind of ironic but like if you go far enough back in time, every single human being of every single group has somebody who is clunking somebody over the head with a club and stealing their bologna sandwich, so to speak. Like, humans have all been hard on each other everywhere. I mean, nobody's, like, living in perfect harmony and, you know, whatever. Like, humans have been hard. But, you know, and most of the conflict through most of human history has been 
you know, about territory or resources, like one group coming in and chasing someone away or stealing their food or taking a captive or whatever, that kind of conflict. But when you look at, like, there's some cool books. Jared Diamond wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, Dan Quinn wrote another one called Ishmael that I think did a good job at, at analyzing this stuff. But starting in, you know, the Fertile Crescent, like the, the Middle East era area, which was not always a desert, it was one of the most productive areas of farmland on the planet. Human, that's where human beings figured out how to be agricultural. Um, there was actually nine different places where humans figured out how to be agricultural all at the same time, but that was one of the big ones. And in that particular place was a really different way of doing violence. So instead of just chasing each other around with clubs and taking their resources, you had colonial violence. So the kind that came in and said, all of you people cannot speak the language you speak, you have to speak our language. And you can't worship God the way you worship. You have to worship God the way we do. And in fact, all of your land and all of your resources and all of you people are now our property. And so that was a different kind of, of violence. Uh, and because of the efficiency in food production um, and a bunch of other things, you had a very efficient application of that kind of violence. So, you know, this is where you get all the religious fault lines, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, fighting with each other over souls, territory, and everything else. This is where, you know, the countries of the Fertile Crescent, you think about like the Roman Empire colonizing huge parts of the planet, you know, um, and, and even, you know, prior to that with Alexander the Great, with, um, you know, the foundations of democracy in Greece, and then, you know, things like that. Like, all of these things were exported all over the planet. And the places that were good at it, England, you know, owning 25% of the real estate on planet Earth at the height of their empire, right. you know, those ideas, institutions, and ways of dealing with things were effective and efficient and um, you know stuff like that I'm not making moral judgments about like good or bad but just it worked right. so you know and, and that's what we have here today <clears throat> it might sound a little bit ironic to say this but like native people have only been dealing with that kind of oppression dynamic for about 500 years white folk have been dealing with that kind of oppression dynamic for thousands of years and as a result, <clears throat> one of the ironies is that, that I see is like in native cultures and communities, although people can be horrible and mean and dysfunctional and violent um, and things like that, there's at least more than a vestigial remnant of some different ways of thinking about things, better and worse. Um, whereas, like, you know, for most of the white populations of the planet they've been steeped in this one kind of paradigm for problem solving and so it it might be true that over the past 500 years you know people of color have been disproportionately victimized by this colonial type of violence um, but it does dehumanize everybody 
and the, the length of history at which various groups have been exposed to that speaks to some of our ongoing dynamics today. It doesn't surprise me that people of color in a place like America, you know, on a per capita basis, disproportionately represent in crimes of poverty, like, um, you know, robbery and um, substance abuse, suicides, things like that. But that white folk completely dominate the ranks of school shooters and serial killers. Because these are culturally ingrained ways of solving problems. And they dehumanize and plague all of us. So just because white folk have been winning the wars more recently, yeah, it does feel better to win the wars than to lose them. Uh, you get more access to resources and things like that doesn't mean that like white folk don't need healing because they do and in fact there's there's more to heal in the historical trauma footprint that white folk are dealing with not just people of color and so when i say like do something together like really to be open to like totally different ways of solving problems and culturally ingraining response to issues and traumas and problems. And that's part of the problem with our politics right now. People are still steeped in that way of solving problems. We're going to make sure our group wins. You know, or an educational system where like some schools get $4,000 per pupil for the year for funding and other ones get $40,000 per pupil for funding. And everyone sleeps okay at night as long as their kids don't have to go to that loser school. Right. You know? Whereas, like, if we really believed in, you know, up by your own bootstraps, hard work, good morals, and you get sweet American apple pie, then we would have an equitable funding of educational opportunities for everybody. We also wouldn't do things like have inheritances. And it would really be just by their efforts that people advance themselves. But it's not what we have. And because par, you know, wealth will self-perpetuate because rich people are going to figure out how to take their money and create trust funds and you know, do away with estate taxes and you know, make sure that money stays in the family, well, then the poverty self-perpetuates too. And yeah, there's some rich people who go poor, and there's some poor people who make it rich. But these are, for the most part, exceptions to the rule. And so when people talk about equity, that's what they're talking about. Like making access to opportunity more equitable. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I think and the other thing that trips people up sometimes, they're like, you know, oh, it can't be the poverty. It's, you know, it can't be the race. It's got to be the poverty. Or it can't be the poverty. It's the gender. It's like, well, why does it have to be either or? Right. How about yes and? Like, mm-hmm. it is the poverty and the race and the gender and the sexual orientation and the whatever mm-hmm. you know it's all of those things and they all intersect with each other it's not like a hierarchy of like it's this then that and that and it's like it's humans it's complicated like it was with my wife you know some days the junk her gender trumps everything and i benefit from being a man in spite of being brown and then other days 
it doesn't matter how damn male I am, I'm going to be persecuted by being brown, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so we, we notice that because, you know, we're just from different groups that, um, how that plays out. Yeah. It's hard for us to see ourselves, to see our blind spots and to check, you know, our affinities and comfort zones and what we consider to be normal. And then that's what just one of the things that happens with people of color is like we're steeped in the same culture that everyone else is. And that culture has been kind of racist towards people of color. So people of color are racist towards people of color. And um, start thinking the white way is going to be the right way or the only way or those definitions of beauty or success are, should be mine. So there's like a billion dollars a year spent on hair straightening products by black folk trying to look like white folk you know mm -hmm. or at least have hair that resembles that because it will be considered more beautiful you know and there are people who resist that and say I'll never do that but you know those things are you'll see it around Bemidji too and while I support people's rights to free expression you'll see full-blooded native girls with blue contacts and you know hair dyed blonde super brown skin you're like what <laughs> you know Right, right. We were kind of talking earlier about the sort of millennial ennui, apathetic lifestyle that seems to be pervasive with the youth of today. Uh, I mean, obviously, it you know, it's true everywhere. But in relation to, like you were saying, like language learning or, um, you know, continuing traditions in native communities, is there any, is there like a counter movement to that where you know people are you know younger kids are more vested in that or do you think it's you know same as anywhere i don't know i think there's competing pressures like first of all humans just every kind of human most of us follow the paths of least resistance so like if our parents were a certain religion yeah we tend to do the same certain religion even if we're not like ardent believers you know the christians show up for a baptism confirmation wedding and a funeral at least right mm -hmm. and once in a while elsewise to make grandma happy <laughs> and and i think it's like that with a lot of people following traditional native ways you know mm -hmm. they, they show up you know for naming ceremony and you know some important feasts or initiations or celebrations along the way and certainly for a funeral right but um, within any group you know there are going to be some Christians for example who are really ardent and deep in their particular beliefs or with traditional native ways too I think one of the things that I do see happening aside from that general dynamic is that um, a lot of native people um, are getting wise to and more interested in their own um, culture and things like that. So they, they're hungry for it. They want it. But like everyone else, they're also busy. And it's not always super easy to get access even to those things that are right in front of you. Like I know for myself, like keeping a sugar bush going every year, that's a lot of work. You know, you got to have buckets and 
you know, supplies and a boiler and you got to take time and the sap runs when the sap runs, not when you want it to run or not run. You know, it's hard to navigate with work and travel schedules and kids going to school. And so it's easier not to do that. So, you know, there are people who do that. And there are a lot of people who might do that if it were easier or many more who would be happy to just like show up one day. Sure. You know what I mean? So like, um, it's like that with, you know, when I teach Ojibwe language, there'll be a lot of people who are curious or interested or maybe sign up for a class. But the number who are really want to do like three years of intensive study to really try to get fluent and work extra hard on their own, much smaller, you know? And so you just, you can't learn a language or a culture just, just by osmosis. You kind of got to do stuff too. So I am seeing people leaning into that and some of the things that are cool and I think have the potential to scale that up a little more are like we've seen some Ojibwe language immersion schools that have popped up and I think that's pretty exciting and has the potential to really track more people like one of them's in um, community called Lakuta which is in Wisconsin and you know, their fluency rates are low. Like there might be less than 10 speakers left in that community who are first speakers of the language. Wow. But they did something there that hadn't been done since World War II, which is they made a child into a fluent speaker of the language. There's about 100 kids coming out of that immersion school who are fluent speakers. Wow. And so that wasn't learned at home. It wasn't learned because it was easier. It was just around and I couldn't avoid it. It wasn't just a father to son you know, mother to daughter transmission kind of thing. But the school created an opportunity and it, it was pretty exciting and energizing for the community there. And, you know, uh, I think the potential for that to happen um, in more places is really exciting. But saying you want to do that and actually doing it is a different thing because those things require a huge amount of work. Probably the most successful indigenous language revitalization effort that I've personally seen is in Hawaii. And uh, at their lowest point, there were only a thousand speakers of Hawaiian left on the planet. Half of them lived in one isolated island community and the other half were all elders mm. when they got started. And their language was illegal for use in public schools. But today, there are over 20,000 speakers of Hawaiian. Um, there are 22 Hawaiian medium schools where the Hawaiian language is used as the language for instruction for all subjects. And you can actually go to school K-12 and even college, having all of your classes taught and delivered in Hawaiian, get a teaching degree, come back and work in the schools. And so like they have a full flywheel, you know, whizzing around developing speakers. And that's pretty, pretty exciting to see what they've done and how they've done it but it doesn't mean it just happens because it should or it's right or things like that there you know we've gone from 500 tribal languages spoken in the u.s and canada we're down to like 163 now the other ones are dead they're gone you know and uh of those languages only 20 are spoken by kids so you know the time for an intervention is right now and some places are like some tribes really are starting to get things going places i've seen things happening are with um blackfeet mohawk navajo cherokee ojibwe um 
And then there's some more isolated communities for like Cree and Inuit where there's a lot of speakers, uh, as well as Ojibwe. So in Canada, so I, you know, those guys have a shot. You know, the other ones, they really better get cracking, or I'm not super hopeful for the future vitality of many of those languages. But but there's possibility, and there's some other places that are just kind of unique, like. Havasupai down in the Grand Canyon is a pretty isolated community where they, uh, most of the people there are speakers, um, and they're talking about taking the English language school and converting it into a Havasupai medium school. If they are able to really make that transition, I think they should be stable. And so there's some groups that are doing things that are pretty interesting there. And to me, I, I you know, I, there's so many reasons why a language matters. Unique worldview unique sets of tools for solving problems, for connecting to, relating to, and understanding, you know, the natural world, so many different things. But I think it speaks well to, you know, a country like America if it is able to support, appreciate, respect, and enable the thriving of different groups rather than just the assimilation of all into one. Mm. It says something about America. And frankly, everyone should care about the ability of America to do something like that. Because it's just a matter of time before white evangelical Christians are a tiny minority. And the preservation of those values, religion, life ways will be important to people in that group. And if that's important to people in that group, the preservation of any minority way of thinking, religion, within a larger context should be important because if we're not able to do that, then they too shall be assimilated into something different. Because it's not a question of if, but when. They are minorities. Regardless of what happens with border walls and everything else. Right. All of that's just political theater. Fish are quiet today. I guess so, man. Well, that's all right. You were talking about sort of the inherent environmental stewardship, say, of Red Lake, you know, sustainably, you know, managed until white people and catastrophe and the collapse. I was like completely blown away. It was just like you offhandedly mentioned it in Warrior Nation that there was like a pack of feral horse horses rocking around up there. Yeah. For, and I was like, what? Like, you know, and then I talking about like the caribou and the moose population, yeah. and it's like uh, I was like aware of some of that, I guess, you know. Yeah. And like that was just kind of mind blowing. It's like, whoa, really? Like in Minnesota, you know, like yeah, in Panama. <laughs> People didn't even realize we had, you know, woodland caribou, like a huge population of woodland caribou and a state hunting season on them. Uh, and they just hunted to extinction. Yeah. It's just crazy. I mean, I'm really, I really like the outdoors and going in nature and seeing, you know, cool stuff. I mean, like this, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> to think that you could... I walked around here and seen any of that and like, you know, readily 
Yeah. Like how far you'd have to go to see Kill some of that off. stuff now, yeah. you know? Like, or what was it, a couple of years ago when that that moose wandered down here yeah. and was in the lake and everyone freaked out? Yeah. Like, that's, you know, that's, you know, I've never seen that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. that's crazy to think that that, you know, was, you know, it's like what else was around, you know? Like, mm-hmm. so last time someone saw a lynx in Minnesota, or, you know, like, any of that craziness and then, yeah and that's for, interesting that daniel quinn he, book i mentioned ishmael he talks too about how you know as the colonial kind of violence was developed that human beings went to war not just with each other differently but went to war with the natural world that like more and more land started being converted to human food production gotcha and so you know, and it made us more efficient so we could have higher human populations and things like that. And so humans started killing off competitive predator species. So like lions, wolves, bears. So you look at Europe, you know, like the main part of Europe, killed off all of their lions, all of their wolves, and all of their bears, except for, you know, Scandinavia, Russia. And uh, like you look at the crests for European nations, England, stuff like that lions you know because mm-hmm. they, they were indigenous Italy lions right you know but they killed them off and that as this went on um, you know anything else that would use the land differently or that would compete with humans for you know in any different way we'd kill them off so if it were rodents that ate roots of plants you know or if it were grazing animals you know that were wild they'd be killed off you know and uh, like here in America, killed 60 million buffalo. Yeah. So that there were, and that was mainly about the Indians, right? So that tribes that were undefeated in battle, Crazy Horse comes into the fort to surrender undefeated, you know, because he's starving. Mm-hmm. And they replaced him with like 60 million European buffalo cows. Right. Right. So they were controlled, domesticated animal populations for human food production, white human food production. But. You know, you look at that, and now we're at the point where something like, you know, over 90%, I think it's like 93% of the mammal populations on planet Earth are human beings, their pets, and livestock. And 7% are wild animals, elephants, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of when you really think about that, not only is that a little sad, but it's dangerous. Oh, yeah. So it's like we're playing Jenga with Mother Earth. Every time there's a new species that we pull out for extinction, like here in Minnesota, woodland caribou, you know, and all kinds of other things, then it's a new Jenga block out from the bottom of the tower to the top, and eventually it gets unstable enough and you get collapse. And we're at a bottleneck in, you know, species on the planet where we're going to see a period of rapid declension that has the potential to destabilize huge ecosystems both in the oceans and on land and while human beings you know like will as a species will survive that we're very adaptable to different kinds of climates and we have lots of technology in different ways will be some of the last things to to go but you know the potential is there to you know 
have a, a radically diminished standard of living and uh, quality and kind of food available for our consumption. And we're already kind of hitting a plateau in human longevity and seeing declension in America in part because of, you know, suicides and substance abuse. But um, even with all of our innovations in healthcare, the fact that most of the food available for us to eat is controlled by Monsanto and pumped full of chemicals that cause cancer and things like that. And there's just no way to get food that is not controlled by those guys. It's getting harder and harder. You know, that, that poses a risk to our longevity. And uh, pretty scary that a private corporation can have that kind of control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why you need, like, your government to have, like, some reasonable regulations because there are countries like Japan, you know, that highly regulate those things. So you, you can't get food that's pumped full of the same chemicals. And guess what happens in Japan? Yeah. Greatest longevity for any population, for any country on the planet. Yeah. And there's a connection. You know? Yeah. It's absolutely. lifestyle too, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, now it's at the point you lived in Mankato for a while. They recommend that nobody swim in any of the waters anywhere in southern Minnesota. Yeah. And the reason is because it's farm country. Right? It's not heavy industry or something. It's farm country. And we can drop with, you know, the fertilizers on every single field down there and when it rains it runs off and creates algae blooms because of the high nitrates in the waters and you know in between the chemicals and the algae blooms you know it's choking off aquatic life and it's just not safe to swim there but how can it you know if it's not safe to swim there in rural southern minnesota then how can we eat the food where the fertilizers drop with gps precision on top of each seed literally right you know? Yeah. And and we do that without question. Yeah. And then every time we want to have a regulation, the entire Republican Party says regulations are evil. They kill the economy. Don't do it. Right. Yeah. But they let, but they let Monsanto patent their seeds, you know, like. And now that whole company has been sold to a German conglomerate. And so our food production is controlled by foreign corporation. <laughs> Super American of us. I uh, know. Good lord. Man. Humans, man. They're ridiculous. I know. I know. I have to get some calories sooner or later here. Yeah, like I say, man, I'm on your time, so if you. Yeah. Well, do you got other things you wanted to. Cover too, you know. I'm happy to give you a little time for this. Well, like I don't know if I like, I don't know the exact terminology I guess to use, but I was just wondering like, I was always really into like creation myths, so to speak, or you know, mm -hmm. I got into Greek mythology and all that sort of stuff. And you did write a book about sort of the oral, or, you know, kind of right. Am I wrong there? Documenting the oral traditions of the. We did some, okay. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, like. Um, for some tribes, the cultural stuff is wide open, like share with the whole world. Some is like radically closed. Like I have some friends at Cochiti Pueblo and I was down there visiting. They're like, yeah, we're having a feast today. I don't know. We might be able to get you in. 
Hmm. I was like, even though I'm like brown and native and braids and everything, you know? Sure. And then uh, some are kind of in between where they're like, you know, some things are open, some things are restricted. And, and I think Ojibwe's world's like that. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the Warrior Nation book, how like, you know, as people were on the move, if somebody didn't like somebody else or thought someone was having too much authority or influence, you know, they just moved down the river and started a new village or something. Sure. And people tended to be quite tolerant of diversity or differences, but um, pretty intolerant of being told what to do. So one of the things that's, that's both beautiful about Ojibwe culture is you do have some variation within cultural practices, but it's also totally confusing to outsiders. Like, how come they do theirs this way and then the next community does it like that? Or two people from the same community give me different guidance or information about what this story is or what it means or something like that. So that's just something to say, prefacing any cultural discussion is gotcha. like, um, you know, this is all I can really tell you is here's what we do in my family or something like that. And then uh, the only other thing to say too, prefacing that is like... Um, we have some things that are wide open, like, for example, our drum ceremonies. That was a gift we had received from the Dakota Indians. It was a peace offering between the tribes. And so the story of the drums, how we do a drum ceremony is open, and the ceremonies are open to everybody of every group. It's supposed to spread the teachings of peace and protection to all people. And then other ones, like, you know, our medicine dance, the substance of what we do there is given to people as part of an initiation rite. So we don't tell those stories kind of out of their ceremonial context. Um, they're given to people as part of their ceremony. So rather than walk around their elders, they got to walk to their elders to get those ones. So you run into a mix uh, in the Ojibwe world. So with regard to um, creation and stuff like that, that's one of those that is told um, but it's told in certain contexts. So we will do that one as part of um, medicine dance, and then we'll do it actually at funerals too. We explain about life and death. And then outside of that, we usually just tell people, go to one of those ceremonies, and then you'll get it. Right. Um, so that's sometimes a little bit frustrating, but, uh, you know, for outside folks, but that's just kind of where it, where it landed. Sure. Um. But there's, is there like a whole, because I, I, I mean, I seem to remember a similar, like from a, when I was a kid hearing, you know, sort of stories like, I don't want to, I'm going to make a comparison to like, you know, some like, you know, uh, a fictional stories by a white racist, but sort of like the just so stories. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Richard Kipling's sort of like, you yeah, know, yeah. how the elephant got its trunk and all that nonsense. Oh, there's a huge genre of those. So in Ojibwe, there's a character named Wayne Buju. He's half human, half spirit. And He's so like the, the trickster god, kind of. Yeah, yeah, so like the Aesop's Fables type stories. There's there's hundreds of Wayne Abuju stories. And uh, they explain, yeah, why the bear has a short tail and, you know, those kind of things. The and, sort of like Prometheus myth as well. Yeah. And so those are um, usually told this time of year. They're told when there's some snow on the ground. And uh, um, I think part of that is, you know, so as not to offend you know, the animals when they're sleeping or the birds are migrating out and stuff and winter's good. It's also just kind of a lull in the normally frenetic 
harvest patterns sure. <laughs> that people had, and there's just more time for storytelling. And they're fun. You know, the Wayne and Bourgeois stories are usually something crazy going on. So those are fun. They're, you know, they're for entertainment, but they also, you know, usually have some sort of moral or guidance or explanation of how things are. Sure, sure. Is there one that you particularly enjoy more than others? I'm not asking you to tell it. I just kind of wanted to... Oh, yeah. yeah. I, um, I don't mind. You could mention looking through this ice hole here. The um, There's a story of the bear and how he got his short tail. That the bear used to have a exceptionally large, long, and bushy tail. It was the envy of many another creature, source of great pride for the bear, who'd go around bragging to all the, all the other animals. Look at my tail, it's so much larger, longer, and more beautiful than yours. Bet you wish you had a tail like this. And uh, <coughs> the fox, who also thought he had a pretty beautiful tail, couldn't quite compare and was getting upset and jealous. And so uh, Fox went out and very carefully worked to cut a hole in the ice and uh, spent a lot of time fishing. And uh, eventually he caught himself a couple of fish. He just nonchalantly went walking by the bear, giant fish clutched in his mouth. And the bear would say, hey, hold up. Where'd you get that fish? He says, oh, never mind. And the, pretty soon the bear was following the fox around, asking him where he was getting his fish. He said, well, okay, I'll, I'll show you. So he brought him out to the, on the ice and told the bear to cut himself a hole, which he did, and started fishing. And in the meantime, the fox very carefully took that giant, beautiful, fluffy tail of the bear and stuffed it into the hole that the fox had cut and uh, covered it up and then all the fox did was tell stories about all the different fish he had pulled out of that lake while the bear kept watching his hole and kept him there for hours and hours and then uh, walked off and the bear decided to get up and as he did, of course, his tail was frozen into the lake and ripped right off. And he had a short, stubby little tail afterwards, much to the delight of the fox, who now had the best <laughs> tail in the forest. Might have to come back to get us some northerns. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're always welcome. I, it's, I'm not, I mean, well, I'm going to start working, but. That's about know. a good a way to end things as I could imagine. Huge shout out and thank you to Dr. Troyer for coming to talk, hang, and educate this guy, and hopefully all of you, while trying to get some food on the table. So great to be able to share a day with such a good dude and educator. Blew my mind more than I'd bargained for, that's for sure. Check him out if he's ever in your hood. And as always, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Give us a like and a share. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter. I'm KCT, and this is Going Up North.